2: New residents share why they love calling it
0: home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.
3: The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror thank you for listening and enjoy the show it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark join tales for dark Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about ruinous roads, forgettable fiends, and prejudiced punishments. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Brian Martinez, Christopher Howard's Slime Beast Wolf, and J.C. Selby to life. Our voice talents Jason Hill, John Rogers, and Alicia Pavlis. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself it's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. (laughs) Our first tale tonight is written by Brian Martinez and voiced by host of the Horror Hill podcast, Jason Hill. In it, a couple seeking thrills bites off more than they can chew when a local legend turns out to have teeth without further ado i present to you broken down road
4: randy and julia loved dead things they craved nothing as much as they did abandoned towns places built by man and then left to be taken back by nature Shut down factories and decommissioned prisons were their playgrounds, and they collected ghost stories like some people collect baseball cards. Other couples called them morbid, of course, and their families thought they were crazy, but they never felt as peaceful, never felt as at home, as when they picnicked in a cemetery, or walked hand in hand in a crypt, reading aloud the names of the deceased to each other. So... When it came time to plan a vacation for their three-year anniversary, it didn't take long to decide on a week-long road trip, an adventure to some of America's forgotten places. Their plan was to start in Pithole City, then drive to Centralia, then on to Penn Hills Resort, with a handful of other stops along the way, culminating in fulfilling their long-time dream of doing a little time at Eastern State Penitentiary. They packed some clothes, loaded up Randy's Oldsmobile, and headed out on their adventure. They'd been driving quietly for the last hour or so, barely seeing another car the entire time, and had fallen into a peaceful silence. Sometime after passing their third state forest, a place where things had the nerve to be alive and boring, Julia was staring out the window at the moonlit highway daydreaming about one day visiting Highgate Cemetery in London when something caught her attention. She sat up in the passenger seat and turned to Randy, eyes lit up with excitement. Did you see that? See what? he asked, glancing at the rearview mirror. Just trust me and pull over. Randy slowed down and rolled onto the shoulder, careful not to run over the lost hump cap there. What is it? he asked. Confused by her sudden change in mood. ''Have you heard of Broken Down Road?'' She asked, not so innocently. Randy scoffed at the odd question. ''Of course.'' ''Well?'' She paused. ''I think I saw an exit back there.'' He looked at his phone mounted at the dashboard. The GPS showed only a straight line indicating the highway they were on. No turns. No exits. Not so much as a dot in the road.'' That's supposed to be way further south from here, he said. True, but no one can ever find it, right? Maybe they're looking in the wrong place. He frowned. He'd read the stories about Broken Down Road, which despite its nickname was more of a local highway than a road, 30 years earlier it had been the site of an accident so deadly that drivers, locals especially, refused to use it anymore, forcing it to be abandoned within five years' time. Stories of what happened there grew into myths, replaced by rumors of missing tourists who came seeking the legendary road. Locals allegedly grew so concerned about Broken Down Road that they took matters into their own hands and concealed the entrance, turning the unfindable road into a legend overnight. Randy was skeptical, but he also knew himself. If he didn't take a look now, he would end up going mad driving up and down the highway, looking for a hidden entrance for the next ten years. So, he shifted the Oldsmobile into reverse and slowly backed up along the shoulder, running over a few rocks and some strips of torn tire rubber, not stopping, until Julia told him to stop. He didn't know how she'd seen it. The trees were so thick, the weeds so overgrown, they were choking each other out. But there between two sickly elm trees was a space little more than a car's length cracked blacktop branched away from the well-maintained highway leading into the night-heavy woods that could be any road Randy said Julia smiled pointing to his phone regardless of what road it was it was unmarked they looked at one another not saying a word until Randy slowly smiled back at her Ten minutes,'' he said. ''If we don't see a way off, we turn around.'' ''I know the rules, my dear. I made the rules.'' With another smile and a glance back to make sure no cars were coming, he swung out wide and steered the Oldsmobile into the space between the trees. Dead branches scraped their doors on either side, fingernails dragging on a chalkboard. The beaten-up blacktop was loud under the car's tires, and the headlights barely pierced twenty feet through the darkness. But Randy kept his foot steady on the gas, pushing the car up the slow incline of an overgrown ramp, the oppressive plant life crowding them the entire way. They shared a breathless minute, dried leaves scratching along the Oldsmobile's roof, but at the end of it, they were greeted by a beautiful sight. An empty road, stretched into the night lit by nothing more than the stars and the moon above. It can't be, Randy said under his breath. Julia reached out and squeezed his leg, barely able to contain her excitement. One way to find out, right? <laughs> I guess so, he said, and pressed down on the gas. The road was surprisingly smooth compared to the ramp they'd taken to reach it. The blacktop was in good condition, with only a few cracks and potholes to speak of. Randy was careful to drive around them, maintaining a low speed despite his urge to open up on the road, where no one was there to stop him. Their adventure had taken an exciting, unexpected turn. And yet, something bugged him about the situation. Julia, who'd been taking picture after picture on her phone, felt his hesitation and asked him what was wrong. How was this so easy to find he asked I mean if it is broken down road Julia thought about it her phone lowering there were some really bad storms around here a few days back maybe they uncovered the entrance maybe he said still not convinced and yet the question moved quickly to the back of his mind as he looked around at the treasure they'd uncovered their hidden playground The road looked as if it hadn't been visited by a single soul in decades. Not until they'd stumbled across it. There was no divider to speak of, only a faded line at its center, little more than a whisper of white reflected in the car's headlights. An impenetrable wall of trees crowded either side of the road, guarding the road, and them, from sight. "'I think there's a river pretty close to here,' he said squinting through the trees a hitchhiker drowned in it a while back as his eyes adjusted further down the road to a shape just barely visible in the distance he heard Julia say something well that's weird my phone shut off she mumbled to herself but Randy couldn't pay attention to her just then because his focus was outside of the car outside and a bit further down About a hundred yards ahead of them, a man stood perfectly still at the center of the road. As Julia struggled with her phone, trying to get it to turn on again, Randy let his foot off the gas and let the car coast. He wanted to say something to Julia, but he didn't want to scare her. The man in the road remained still, either oblivious to the car or standing in defiance of it. Closer now. Randy could see that the man was facing away from them. He wore a dark suit with red shoes, the collar of his shirt sticking up from the jacket. Only twenty yards away from him now, Randy brought the car to a complete stop. Julia finally looked up from her dead phone. What are you... She started saying, but her voice cut out when she saw the man in the road. Not moving. Not facing them not doing anything, but blocking their way. Randy? She said. I know. No? He might need help. Randy? She repeated, her voice quivering this time. Look at his feet. He looked, and immediately wished he had not. Randy had thought the man was wearing red shoes, but in fact... He wasn't wearing shoes at all. His feet were bare, no shoes or socks on them. The skin had been shorn clean off, leaving behind a mixture of raw muscle and bloody flesh, pink and white and puddled red. Call the police, he said quietly. Just as he did, his phone shut off as well. Randy ripped it from its mount and pressed the power button, then gave it an angry shake, but it remained powerless, the screen dark and cold. "'You need to get us out of here,' Julia said, her body twisted toward him, wide eyes pleading. The surprise stop had taken a bad turn, and their adventure was suddenly no longer fun. They either needed to keep going, or turn around.' Anything but sit in the middle of an abandoned road and stare at a man with skinless feet. Where did he go? Randy asked. Julia snapped forward in her seat, seeing what Randy saw. The man was gone. He'd vanished, leaving behind two perfectly formed footprints in the middle of the road, both painted in dark, red blood. A blink later, and those were gone too. Randy felt it before he saw it. The face in the driver's side window. Half red. Half white. The left side torn clear off. Julia screamed. The sound was deafening in the confined space. Randy fumbled so hard for the gas he missed the pedal. The shoe slipping off. Then aimed again and stomped it like he meant to crush it. The car lurched forward, rocketing away from the man with half a face. Julia looked back and shouted something like, "'Oh God, he's not alone!' Except Randy barely heard anything but the heartbeat pummeling his eardrums. His knuckles were white as he squeezed the steering wheel and tried to keep control of the car, pushing its old whining engine as hard as it would go. "'What the hell was that?' Julia asked, tears choking her vision. "'I don't know. (sighs) I don't know,' was all Randy could think to say. He looked in the rear view. Than the side view, but saw nothing, except the darkened road slipping past. No bloody footprints, no man with half a face. They tried to calm themselves, come up with a plan. They would drive as long as it took to find the next exit, they decided. No turning back, no slowing down for anything short of a brick wall. Randy wanted to ask what she’d meant by “He’s not alone, but decided against it. He caught his breath and checked the time, trying to make sense of it all. The clock in the Oldsmobile’s dashboard read 9:26. As he watched, the display dimmed for a moment, blinked all zeros, then returned to normal. He was about to ask Julia if she’d seen it too, when the wheel seized in his hands. It felt like someone had grabbed the wheel and was trying to pull it away from him. The car lurched left, then right, as Randy fought for control. He tried to hit the brakes, but the pedal didn't budge under his foot. The car careened down the dark road, the headlights swaying left and right in the night, as Randy wrestled with the wheel. He saw the line of trees up ahead, drawing closer every second, and knew, knew in his bones... That whatever he was fighting with. Wanted them to meet those trees. To impale the car on them. His hands clenched the wheel. Arms shaking from using all their strength. He started to think he needed a brace for impact. To prepare for the unavoidable. Before he knew what was happening. Julia. Took off her seatbelt. Reached over. And turned the key in the ignition. With the engine cut the Oldsmobile coasted along the road, the wheels still pulling them left and right until finally they crawled to a stop at a harsh angle, halfway between the lanes. Randy and Julia watched the steering wheel turn on its own for a few seconds, still trying to make them crash, before finally falling still. Then they looked at each other. Both of them were sweaty and pale, both breathing heavily, both looking as if they were about to throw up. "'I was good thinking,' he said, and she blinked. "'Thanks.' "'What did you mean back there when you you said he wasn't alone?' The car came alive with the sounds of fists pummeling the glass. There was no one around them, no one on any side of the car, and yet it sounded like a crowd was beating the windows and kicking the doors, an angry mob trying to rip them out of the car.' Randy checked the door locks as Julia covered her ears, trying to shut out the din of furious smashing and screaming. Randy looked around, assessing their situation. They were trapped. Really trapped. Turning the car on meant crashing. Staying there meant being attacked by an unseen horde. Getting out meant... Well, he wasn't about to get out, not anytime soon. Not while the pounding and scratching continued... The best option, the only option, was to wait out the attack. He distantly remembered how he used to like dead things, but that idea seemed about a million miles away just then, or however far they'd traveled down broken-down road. Then he heard it. The unmistakable crack of glass.
1: "'There!'
4: Julia shouted, pointing at the hairline fracture in the rear windshield. As unseen fists continued to beat on the car, the crack grew longer and longer, branching off like arteries until the whole sheet threatened to smash in. Randy stared at Julia, not knowing what to do. Just go, she said. Anything is better than here. There was no time to argue. The rear windshield collapsed inward, a million bits of safety glass exploding across the rear seats. Randy twisted the key turning the old engine over on the first try and floored the gas pedal, getting them the hell out of there. A quick glance at the mirror revealed a swarm of bloody hands being pulled from the missing windshield. He was thrilled to find the steering wheel was completely under his control this time, and Julia was too as she let out a small, nervous laugh. In no time, they were speeding back down Broken Down Road and away from the things that wanted to be in with them the night wind whipping through the car from the missing rear windshield. Their hair and clothes flapped and waved as they careened along the long-lost highway. "'Do you see an exit?' Julia asked over the sound of the wind assailing them. "'I... I think... I, I think... I think I see something,' he said, straining to see in the lightless night. But then he smelled something, too. Something overpowering, like blood mixed with earth." And before he knew it, the hands were on him. Cold hands covering his eyes, choking him from behind, scratching and pulling at his face. He tried to tear them away, but it was too late. He felt the car leave the highway, tires bouncing on unpaved ground. And then, just for a moment, with fingernails pulling at his eyes, he heard Julia scream... Randy felt the impact in his chest as the seatbelt engaged like a punch to the sternum. Then, his ears were filled with the sound of breaking glass and crunching metal. The world folded in around him. The hands on his face disappeared as quickly as they came, leaving him to gasp for breath as his vision came back and the car settled into its new, mangled shape. Blinking, shaking his head. Randy studied the passenger seat next to him for some time, trying to make heads or tails of it. So many things had been appearing and disappearing that night. He thought it was another trick of the light. Maybe damage to his brain, sustained from the crash. Maybe even the thick smoke exhaling from the dashboard was choking him, making him delirious. Because something about the passenger seat didn't make sense. It was empty. Julia was gone. He didn't know whether to trust his own eyes or even his mind. Had she not been with him on the trip? Were his memories of talking with her and being next to her all false? Just more damage from the crash? But there was one sight, one image that brought everything into instant, painful focus her seatbelt. She'd taken it off before the crash. Randy became aware of a cold draft whispering across his face. He turned his sore neck to look at the windshield, at the massive hole in the passenger side. Then he looked through it, through the billowing smoke rising from the car's hood and to the woods beyond. There, at the foot of a moss-covered pine, Julia lay face up, arms at her sides, as simply as if she were reclined on their couch back home. Oh, my God, Randy said over and over, clawing his way out of his seatbelt and focusing upon his crumpled door. He ran to her, mumbling prayers the whole way until he collapsed in the dead leaves next to her and shook her, the breath caught in his chest as he prayed and shook, prayed and shook. Slowly, she opened her eyes. It was a miracle, and he laughed. She sat up despite him telling her not to, and she looked around at the woods, then at the highway, as if she'd never seen them before. The smell came again to Randy's nose, the smell of death. Then, he saw the faces in the trees, staring at them. ...emerging from the shadows of the pines. Even though he knew he shouldn't move someone so soon after an accident... ...he decided the alternative was much worse. He helped Julia to her feet and brought her up onto the paved road... ...leaving behind the ruined Oldsmobile. With an arm around her waist, he started walking her down the highway... ...away from the people coming from the trees... ...and the others in the road. Some with missing arms. Some with burnt clothes and skin... He didn't know how long it would be until the next exit, but he wasn't going to stop until they reached it. The burnt and bleeding crowd shuffled slowly behind, though he tried not to look at them. After a few minutes of painful walking, Randy heard a sound of the trees on the other side of the highway. It took some time to place it, but soon, he realized what it was. The river, the one they talked about earlier. It was close by. Closer than the exit that wouldn't come. And then something kicked in the back of his mind. A tiny thought. A single fact repeated in so many of the million ghost stories he'd read and collected over the years. An ancient, time-tested rule to offer protection from the dead. "'Running water!' he shouted proudly. (laughs) "'They can't cross it!' He didn't wait for Julia to agree with him. He just grabbed her hand and started running toward the river." weaving between trees and jumping over rocks. Julia kept up, letting herself be pulled toward what might be their only escape. She didn't complain about her injuries or let them slow her down. Before long, they emerged from the other side of trees to find a wide river rushing through the moonlit night. It was swollen from the recent storms, the waters flowing dangerously fast, threatening to carry them or anyone away with one misstep. Randy let go of Julia's hand so he could step in properly before turning back to help her in. The water was frigid, soaking his shoes and pants instantly. "'Come on!' he called out, breath already shaking. "'They're coming!' From the woods, emerging from between the old, knotted trees that held back the waterlogged shoreline, broken bodies stepped into the moonlight. A woman, in a faded yellow dress burnt a little more than charcoal from the waist up. An older man, a truck driver from the look of his clothes, with a horribly broken neck that allowed his bloodied head to flop around. Two little children, one boy and one girl, whose shattered bodies barely held them up on blackened legs. Standing in the bitterly cold water, the heat draining from his body, Randy had a thought so strange... So foreign. It was as if it weren't his own. As if he turned into a hidden radio frequency. A code buried in the airwaves. It was the thought that Broken Down Road had been so easy for them to find that night for a reason. Because they hadn't found it. Rather, it had found them. It had appeared to them by its own choice. Its own volition. The playground... Seeking the toys. Body temperature dropping, blood going cold, Randy understood the truth of Broken Down Road. It was always easy to find, when it wanted to be found. He shouted for Julia to get into the water as more and more destroyed people came out of the trees. Julia, beaten up badly from the crash, stood above him in the night, pale and beautiful and his to protect And yet she didn't move. Didn't join him in the freezing cold water. She didn't even look scared anymore. Just bloodied and discolored. He looked down at his hand. The one he'd been offering to her. And saw how much of her blood was on it. Cold. And coagulated. As Randy looked back up and watched the hands reach out for him. Julia among them her bloodied fingers beckoning him to come back, to join her and the others on land. He suddenly knew the truth, that she couldn't set foot in the river, couldn't even touch it. The dead couldn't cross running water, and soon, neither could he.
0: Or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
3: I hope you enjoyed Broken Down Road, as written by Brian Martinez and performed by Jason Hill. If you enjoyed Jason's performance, check out more of his narrative nightmares on his program, Horror Hill, available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever your favorite programs can be found. Up next we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Christopher Howard Wolfe, also known in creepypasta circles as Slime Beast, and voiced by John Rogers. Chris is infamous for creating some of the most unforgettable short horror fiction this side of the new millennium, including the classics abandoned by Disney and Whimsywood. Wood. In tonight's tale, however, we'll learn about some legends and lore that are not as easily committed to memory and perhaps it's better that way <laughs> without further ado i present to you creepy pasta is dead creepy pasta is dead its
1: corpse is filled with parasites there was a brief wonderful window of time in the early 2010s where everything was perfect Slenderman was still scary, Candle Cove could've been a real show, Jeff the Killer was… well, let's just say his flaws hadn't been fully explored just yet. A closed community of readers and writers frequented a small selection of websites, mostly 4chan, and shared anonymous tales of terror. Then it got popular. YouTube got a hold of it, and soon hordes of new authors were trying to get noticed by minor celebrities like Uncle Pasta, Da Pasta Creep, and whoever else was lucky enough to snag a memorable channel name. Where talent failed, clickbait reigned supreme. Creepy Pasta became less about trying to convince people your story was true, and more about fitting into a top 10 true vampire encounters video. The plot quickly became less important than thinking of a catchy title. The fandom grew and mutated, as fandoms tend to do. It's just the nature of fame. Monsters and serial killers were turned into eligible bachelors and bachelorettes, shipped and reshipped with each other in risqué fanfic. Hollywood took notice and tried to exploit the audience for a cash grab. TV shows and movies were spat out with little to no regard for their source material, watered-down nightmare fuel, whitewashed, cursed images. The shadows that stalked the night became shadows of their former selves. Even the SCP Foundation and No Sleep are now showing the same signs of degradation that will eventually lead them into obscurity. Give it time. Throughout it all, Throughout the rise and the fall of a niche art form, there was macabaroni.com, a somewhat clever combination of macabre and macaroni—in other words, creepy pasta. Launched in 2008, macabaroni was a labor of love. It was created as a repository for anonymous horror stories that would otherwise be lost forever to the depths of imageboard history. The creator, ScareWare, reposted stories he found across the web and accepted the occasional submitted work if it met his quality standards. A few years ago, after more than a decade of operation, the website was sold at auction. There was no warning, no announcement. One day, it was safe in the hands of a longtime community member. The next, it was purchased by a small Silicon Valley media company that specialized in fan sites for popular TV shows. People who knew the owner were just as shocked as the rest of us. There was talk about Scareware saying the site was hard to keep control of before the sale, but other than that, no one actually expected him to step down. It was even more confusing when he disappeared from the internet completely. For about a year, the previously indispensable resource for all things Creepypasta languished under the control of a company that didn't understand it. They tried to polish up the site's image and make it friendlier to casual visitors. In all fairness, they were just trying to cater to a more diverse and expanding fan base. Unfortunately, small companies have to turn a profit. When Macabaroni.com failed to bring in said profit, They immediately put it back up for sale. Again, without warning and without a single word to the readers. You know, looking back at it, I wonder how many authors even heard that their stories were being sold for profit along with the site. The newest buyer was Liam Schilling. He was a random entrepreneur that had amassed personal wealth by selling work-at-home ebooks and get-rich-quick video seminars. The things that bored soccer moms waste their money on and never actually learn from. Somewhere along the line, he got the idea to invest in web development. One of his business contacts probably told him that ad parking and domain name speculation were the next hot trends in virtual real estate. That bubble had burst years ago, much like Creepypasta itself. Regardless, Liam was the proud owner of Macabaroni.com for the small fee of $100,000. I guess he could afford to overpay. This is where I come in. I'm not a skilled author, obviously. I just enjoyed the spooky stories I read and tried to emulate that to create my own content. I started by hacking out clumsy revenge fantasies and then moved on to gory monster stuff, Wendigo's Nowadays, you're likely to find me writing psychological slow-burn plot lines, 12-part story threads, and the like. I was one of many, many authors who had submitted written work to the site. I guess Liam made his way down the list of emails asking random people if they would be interested in volunteering to help review and greenlight submissions. I was enticed by the chance to help new writers step into the spotlight, If they weren't quite ready yet, I could offer them critiques that might help them grow. The creepypasta community was dying, but in one small corner of the internet, I could try to keep part of it alive. I quickly agreed to help with the site, and Liam answered back immediately. Much to my own surprise, I was given the keys to the kingdom, with little to no questions asked. At the time, I thought he trusted me because of the quality of the stories I had sent in. In retrospect, He likely didn't care enough about the content to bother finding out who I was. As long as he didn't have to do the work, he was willing to take the risk. Macabaroni was just another revenue stream to him, and any warm body would do in my position. To him, the site where I spent so many sleepless nights was no different from topsportsbettingtips.net or kitchenbathroomcountertops.org, both of which he also owned. (sighs) There were so many Skype calls, so many long, drawn-out monologues where he would tell me about how smart he was and how many business opportunities he had lined up, all while I just nodded along, never able to get a word in. One of Liam's favorite phrases when it came to the site was, make it go away. Problem with the WordPress theme, make it go away. Random DDoS attack on the site. Make it go away. Authors coming around and asking for us to pay them a cut of ad revenue. Make it go away. I convinced myself that no matter how much Mr. Schilling disrespected the site, I would be there to guard the stories I loved. I would make sure a new generation of fans could experience all of that fear and unapologetic, hyper-realistic detail. Across the next year, I did my best to ignore the warning signs. At first, it was easy to assume Liam was just making mistakes because he was new to creepypasta and didn't know anything about it. I figured that he would do his research and come to understand that he bought something very important to a lot of people. Eventually, I understood that he had no interest whatsoever in becoming a part of our community. Stories were going missing. I don't know how many times it happened before I noticed. When one of my favorite classics, the Cackle Man, disappeared overnight, I contacted Liam to report what I assumed was a database glitch. I already expected his usual response. He would just tell me to get rid of the problem, even though I had only agreed to review submissions. How did he get me to handle every facet of the site's operation? (sighs) I guess you only get to be a rich scumbag by being very good at manipulating people." I was surprised when the reply to my email wasn't his usual make-it-go-away catchphrase. Apparently, Liam's girlfriend had sat down and looked at the site. I never really knew much about her, but he was living in Taiwan at the time, and I always pictured her as a pretty, much younger lady who probably regretted her life choices. One thing I did find out about her was that she hated the Cackle Man. Liam's exact words were gross and disturbing. I tried to explain to him that the whole point of Creepypasta was to be disturbing, and that gross was subjective. Regardless, he decided the story was offensive and had deleted it himself. Deleted just like that. For all he knew, and he knew very little, that could have been the only preserved copy of the story. He was willing to just erase someone else's work, something so many readers loved with no forewarning, and he saw nothing wrong with it. I watched in stunned silence as more stories vanished over the course of months. Mr. Shush, Bill the Bleeder, the weird case of Casey Weir. He made them go away. The fact that he didn't ask me to remove anything proved that he knew it was wrong. He knew I never would have agreed to it, so he just hoped I wouldn't notice. At that rate, there would be no stories left. Horror is offensive. That's kind of the point. What's worse, people were contacting me about the missing content. I had to walk a tightrope of explaining why exactly the stories were gone without making Liam look bad. A gnawing, cold feeling in my stomach told me that if he felt everyone was pissed off at him, he might actually throw a tantrum and torch the entire website out of a petty need for revenge. He outright owned one of the largest archives of our shared history and the website traffic would be just as valuable to him with a parked advertising page. Maybe it would make even more money without stories getting in the way of the ads. (sighs) Eventually, I couldn't stand the random deletions any longer. Being used, being unappreciated, that was my own fault for letting it happen. However, Watching Liam Schilling throw away great pastas like an infant pushing a plate of spaghetti off his high chair was breaking me. I waited for our weekly Skype call to give him the news. I was going to quit, effective immediately, with absolutely no notice, since no one else seemed to be giving any. It was the dead of night in his part of the world, so he'd have to sleep on what I was about to say. I let him drone on and on about himself as per usual. He talked about his vast intelligence and his keen business sense. He mentioned the business deals he was working on and how much money he would make. I guess he expected me to be jealous or to admire him. Instead, I just interrupted him once in a while with sarcastic comments. Cool! I cheered. I may have even thrown in an awesome or two. I think I went a bit too far when I shouted, Wow, bro, that sounds epic! But he didn't seem to notice. I guess he thought I was genuinely impressed. No surprise there, he probably spent the majority of his time surrounded by a corporate cult of yes-men who bought all of his self-serving double-talk. Finally, the hour-long speech was drawing to a close. It was time to tear him down with my own diatribe on how much of a disappointment he had been. I was ready to list every one of his failings, and to let him know I would use his own story submission form to directly contact anyone who volunteered for him in the future. He'd have to run the site himself, or not at all. Before I got the chance to speak, the sound of a sharp knock came from his side of the call. It sounded a bit distant, and if I had to guess, I would say it was coming from the front door of the house. Hang on, that's probably a kemi. Liam snorted as he hauled his pale doughy form up from his desk chair and left the room. He'd been wearing boxer shorts the entire time. Well, at least I finally knew the name of the girlfriend, something that was never important enough to him to mention. I sat there, holding my tongue once again, After everything that had built up to that moment, I was left with self-righteous blue balls. Typical. Liam entered the room again on screen. More accurately, he burst in. He looked panicked, horrified. He closed the door behind him, and after a moment of flustered inaction, he propped a chair against the doorknob. What's wrong? What's going on? I asked. Seeing that look of fear on a human being's face, even one as punchable as his, made me forget all of my hatred. Shut up! Stop making noise! Liam whispered angrily. I saw his hand move to the side of his computer and figured he must have turned the volume to zero. I watched as Liam took his cell phone in shaking hands and dialed a number I couldn't see. He said something in another language. Mandarin, I would assume. All the while, a slow, steady banging could be heard in the background. Someone was repeatedly striking a door, hard. As Liam stumbled over his words, I heard the sound of that far-off door cracking under the weight of fists. Within moments, the door to his home office was rattling from the blows of that same intruder. I could only look on as the door came off of its hinges and fell to the floor, knocking over the prop chair. Liam stared forward toward the webcam, toward me. I'll never erase his wide-eyed, vacant expression of dread from my mind. In the darkness of the hallway behind him, I saw a human shape. I saw white, piercing eyes like flashlights and a gleaming grin that looked more like a white void than teeth. The Cackle Man. For a moment, I considered the idea that it was all a prank. It seemed too insane to be real. That moment didn't last long, however. I instinctively covered my mouth as if screaming would make any difference at that point. The Cackle Man stepped into the room, fluorescent lights doing nothing to illuminate his pitch-black body. He was a black hole of a person, save for those high-beam facial features. Just like in his story. The story Liam had deleted. I heard the hollow, reverberating laughter of the Cackle Man as my eyes focused and fixed on other figures behind him. A human corpse puppeted like a marionette by ropey tendrils of its own blood, moving methodically as those red, congealed feelers sought out cracks and crevices to use for leverage. I'd recognize Bill the Bleeder even if there hadn't been any fan art of him. Then, torn black jeans and army boots, fingerless gloves and a military jacket, a sweatshirt hoodie with no face inside. Just the tremendous open mouth of a lamprey. It was Mr. Shush, the slasher icon popular with edgy teens. Following behind, an unassuming young man in a bow tie, sweater vest, and Coke bottle glasses Casey Weir. For some reason, he always scared me the most. I guess the quiet ones are the worst. Behind the foursome, I could see motion. More creatures and killers packed into the hallway. Other characters from other stories Liam unceremoniously deleted. Remnants of discarded legends. Ghosts of the stories he had killed. Suddenly, Liam snapped back to reality. He turned in his chair away from me and toward the things behind him the things that were now pushing against each other and vying for position. Everyone wanted to be the first to get a piece of him, and no one wanted to be left out at the end. Make it go away, he timidly whined. If I still had any question about whether or not this was a joke, it would have been gone the moment Mr. Shush bit into Liam's face. I just shook, shook, and stared, until a stray spatter of blood covered the webcam's lens. I could hear the screaming, then a pathetic gurgling coming from my speakers long after the visuals were obscured. The inhuman, echoing laughter never stopped. If the story held true, any trace of Liam, if anything at all was left of him, would disappear into the endless abyss of the Cackle Man's body. Not a single scrap would be found. Thus ended the cautionary tale of Liam Schilling. His demise was as uncanny and traumatic as any classic creepypasta, and I suppose there's a bit of poetic justice somewhere in there. If he had bothered to read the stories he was hosting, he would have known not to meddle with such things. Then again, maybe his story is just yet another silly revenge fantasy. A greedy, brutish slob is drawn and quartered while the person he wronged gets to watch. I don't know. I didn't feel vindicated. I only felt sick. Needless to say, macabaroni.com was sold yet again. I don't know if one of Liam's family members put it up for sale or if it was one of his business partners. Part of me believes the site is selling itself, a digital flytrap that lures in the cockroaches of the community. Maybe it's killed before. No one has heard from the original owner in a couple of years now. The weirdest thing about all of this, if you can believe anything is weirder than what I've told you already, is what happened to the stories. I can't find them. No one can. The Cackleman, Mr. Shush, Bill the Bleeder, the weird case of Casey Weir, and all the rest. They're gone. Like, completely gone. It's like everyone in the realm of internet horror is suffering from a shared case of the Mandela Effect. These stories just do not exist, in any platform, in any format, not on 4chan, something awful, or even Reddit. Even the creepypasta wiki doesn't have it, and they'll publish pretty much anything these days. I think the stories and characters I grew up with are gone forever. Worst yet, maybe they're finally free. The only thing i can think of that might fix both of those problems is if i or someone like me wrote and posted those stories again maybe fiction is just a cage in which we trap our demons i don't know if anyone's going to actually take the time to rewrite them though creepypasta is dead
3: I hope you enjoyed "Creepy Pasta is dead as written by slime beast christopher howard wolf as performed by john rogers up next we've got a third and final dose of darkness for you written by jc selby and performed by alicia pavlis in it we'll dive into the dark side of human nature where entire worlds and upbringings revolve around treating people like cattle But where, even the darkest corners, there may just be a bit of light at the end of the tunnel, if you look hard enough. Without further ado, I present to you, The Lilac Tower.
2: As someone who grew up deep in the hornet's nest, I can tell you, we are conceived in hatred. The force that pulled my father to my mother was not love for another it was hate for others it was a sense of superiority over anyone with more melanin than he had he used her to breed me to be a soldier in his war just like he bred my brothers before me but unlike my brothers i was born a girl good for nothing but making more soldiers in a war to protect white blood I have memories of being a small child and being in the house they built to raise their white army in. From the foundation up, that house was formed in righteousness, in the absolute cement and stone certainty that the white race was in danger, and it was our job to not only keep the bloodlines pure, but to prepare for the great war that was coming. My father and his brothers would recruit new family, and my father would build another addition to the house. Every room came with a hidden weapons cache and an escape route to the bunker that ran south down the hill in the basement. When I was six, my parents were building an extension over the garage. It was intended for our new brother, Gary, and his wife, sister, Marilyn. I was sharing a room with my twin nieces, who were only two years younger than me, and I felt crowded. I would climb into that construction area and look down at the property my father owned. It extended down the hill to the man-made lake we had built as a fresh water source. There was a planned window on the south side that was my favorite place in the world. My favorite landmark on the whole property was right outside that window. A tall, lilac bush that smelled like absolute heaven. The wind would blow the lilac breeze into the window and I could float away on those great big purple clouds. A garden and accompanying shed were at the top of the hill with the main house, along with a playground, also handmade by the men in my family. The trees to make the wood in the garden boxes were cut by white hands. The lumber was only handled by white hands. White businesses only. It was at this time that my oldest brother had a falling out with our father, always headstrong. Charles had always taken the brunt of the beatings even would smart off to my father while I was getting whipped so that father would turn his wrath on him instead. Charles was the smartest, and that fact was the thread that unraveled the wool that was over my eyes my entire life. Charles said that whites were not superior in every way. Charles was the smartest person I knew, and that caused my first true internal conflict, even at an early age. Once. Charles stood at his spot at the dinner table and recited the names of famous scientists, authors, and athletes, none of them white. Charles had lit up charismatically as he animatedly told the tale of Jim Thorpe, an Indian who beat a bunch of white men in the Olympics. Charles wasn't just smart. He was charming and strong, the type of boy all the girls fancied and all the boys wanted to be like. Mama once told me that when Charles was very young, Most of our family saw him as a chosen leader of the white army, handpicked by God and given to us to defend us from the black man when he rioted and rose up against us. But Charles wasn't a brutal and cold war mastermind. He was everything I found Christ to be in the Bible and in the shows we were allowed to watch on the television. Charles was kind to me and always making sure I was included, that I wasn't overlooked as the soul and unwanted daughter. That's why I was so gutted when he and father clashed. When father would quote the Bible until the vein in his neck pulsed blue and throbbing, Charles would calmly but firmly disagree and quote from science journals and historic texts. Father would eventually break a plate or dish or strike Charles. This would end the argument and Charles would lose a privilege such as his time or the family computer. Eventually, Charles wasn't allowed to leave Father's site unless on errands. Once, Charles was caught sneaking to the library when he was supposed to be on errands on his bike. Father made Charles take his own bike apart piece by piece and throw the pieces in the fire pit. I knew it was a matter of time before Charles left for good. Sure enough, one morning I woke up and he wasn't at the table. He wasn't in the room he shared with Caleb, nor the backyard with Mama. I went to my perch in the almost finished extension and looked out the window hole of the far wall and down the property. The lilac blew heavily perfumed wind at me, but had grown so tall my view was blocked. With a growing lump in my throat, I ran to the room where our homeschooling was done, only to find the younger children. I found Mama out back at the laundry line and rushed to tell her. Mama, Charles isn't anywhere, he's gone. I remember crying and pulling on her dress. Mama had stopped what she was doing to lean over and picked me up. She never said he was probably just on errands. She didn't say he'd be back home soon. She knew what I knew. Charles had not only left our home and family, but he left everything our father had taught us as a pile of lies in the dust. Thank God he had. Thank God he lit that fire in me, to question what father and the men said about the Jews running everything and the Mexicans waiting in the woods to rape and kidnap me, to push back against the rhetoric, but only inside. To never let father see that I doubted his holy right. Only once in a while did I grow too big for my britches and I would get a punch across the face. <laughs> he always ended with a smile too. Charles's running away also wedged my father's grip on my mother ever so slightly. Slightly but enough to begin the decade spent chipping away at his hold on us. To overcompensate for driving my darling brother off, my newly sober father had given me the new room addition. I was ecstatic. I won't lie. I even named it the Lilac Tower. I even got new wallpaper, white, with black trees. I was happy, but never for one second did I forget that my father had run off the pure and good in my life. Little did he know that instead of enforcing my loyalty, he had ensured my resistance. At sixteen, Mama and I ran away. Over the course of three weeks she and I began to sneak and stock food. We took a sock from the laundry pile here, an extra shirt there. Mama had even bravely taken a gun from the panel beneath the floor while Father drunkenly slept. The night we left, Mama didn't even cry. She met me in the kitchen, and the second our feet touched the wet grass, we ran. We ran down the slippery hill, around the lake, and never looked back until the main house was far Far off in the distance. Mama used tools to cut the fence, and we ran out through the woods. The woods I had been told were full of Mexicans and black men, that the evilest people were waiting for me, and my white blood specifically. At 16, in those same woods, I never felt safer. Taking a page from Charles's book, Mama had gone to the library once it opened and found the number for a women's shelter. We dialed a number from the librarian's desk as she sympathetically looked over our dirty and handmade clothes. Mama said we had to wait for a call back and the librarian told her to sit down and wait. While we waited, I looked around me at the absolutely overwhelming influx of information, art, narrative, and imagination. We only had a handful of children's books at the house and they had all been approved by father. The only books in my room at home were the Bible and a worn bird guide. I got lost in the small children's area alone. I held where the wild things are in my hands when Mama got the call back. We had to wait for a red car at the gas station at 9.30. Mama was frightened that the others would know we were missing by now and would come looking for us. The librarian had overheard and offered to drive us to the gas station. I'll never forget this gesture. Or that night, when Mama and I crawled into our shared bed at the shelter, when I opened my bag and found... Where the wild things are tucked into my things. When I was still 16, I petitioned for my father to surrender parental rights. Mama and I had been helped by a victim's advocates group, and they helped Mama file for divorce and even find a job. After my testimony about abuse and brainwashing at the hands of my father, the FBI had raided our former home in the early morning. Two agents waited in our kitchen, and told us that Caleb had called them days ago with information. I remember mama's face lighting up at the name of her son. There had been a 12 hour standoff where father had taken my niece's hostage. Several of the brothers had attempted to defend the house with weapons, but to the surprise of everyone involved, the weapon stores had been emptied. Mama and I running away had stirred a resistance in the other women and children caleb had slipped them the keys to all the caches except for fathers three of the brothers died using their sole firearms against the fbi team at the last moments of the standoff father held one gun to his own head and another to the head of my niece april april's twin alice was on her knees with her hands behind her head the fbi tipped off by caleb had run up the secret bunker tunnels to the house and overcame my father He didn't survive, but thankfully April and Alice did. Six months after the standoff, the news people had all left, leaving Mama with some money they had given her for telling her story. Caleb had also given Mama money from the White Army when the judge granted him the house and father's estate. He and his wife Michelle move right across the street from our new house, and my nieces and I are going to attend high school together in the fall. We will all be freshmen, even though other girls my age are juniors. The school district people told Mama that they were impressed with my fast learning and reading comprehension, but socially it would be best to be with those a little younger. Six months to the day, that's when the FBI came to talk to Mama one day. This wasn't uncommon as they came a lot, these two men, Agent Wiltshire, was the first black person I had ever met in real life. Years drilled into my head about how angry and brutish the black men were stood no chance against the warm and gregarious nature of Agent Wiltshire. He and his partner, Agent Stevens, were sitting at the kitchen table when their voices dropped low. Mama asked me to go across the street and wait for me at Caleb's house. Even across both front yards, across two lanes of our wide street, I still heard Mama scream. It wasn't like when Father would hit her, or even like when she could scream in her sleep at the shelter. It was the most horrible sound I had ever heard in my life. Caleb tried to keep me from going, but I ran across the street and into my home as fast as I could. Mama was on the floor, in a heap. The ambulance men said she was in shock and would be just fine. They said they gave her medicine to sleep. Caleb promised me he would take me to the hospital, but first, he said, we had to talk. I couldn't understand why Caleb was so upset, if Mama had just fainted. I felt a panic in my chest as he led me to the bedroom and closed the door behind us. Maggie. He said in a tone I had never heard. Maggie. He began again, but his voice broke. I had never seen Caleb cry before. I felt the panic begin to crawl in all directions all over my body. What? What is it, Caleb? I had asked, my voice screeching. Maggie. When they searched the house. They searched your room. The Lilac Tower. There was a weapons cache with a gun in it, he said. Shaking as he spoke. I waited for the pieces to fall into place, but they didn't. Every room had a panel with a weapons compartment. When Father built what would become my room, of course there was a hidden panel somewhere. Ten years, and I had never thought about it. Ten years of hiding up in that room, with its windows and its lilac smell. Ten years of growing out of the dirt and into the light, Ten years of keeping my father's prison at bay. Of lying awake at night and dreaming I had run away like Charles. I i thought you cleaned the house of the weapons before the raid. The FBI said you were the one who fed them information from the inside. Why, Why didn't you take that one too?" I asked. I didn't know there was one, Caleb said, sitting on the bed next to me, his body sinking further down than I thought it would father told me that in the event of the war, I was to get to and protect you first, because there was no weapon in your room. He said when he built it, he was so distracted by Charles's disappearance that he never built a secret compartment. I felt the rage build up and spill out of my mouth in a scream. He never gave a damn about Charles. He was happy when he ran away. I screamed, standing over Caleb, sobbing. Caleb stood up and put his hands on my shoulders. Magpie. He whispered my name in such a soft tone. I went silent. Maggie, he lied. He lied to me. He lied to all of us, Magpie. Look at me. I did. Part of me wishes I hadn't. That I never heard what I heard next. Maggie. The night Charles went away. Father took him to the bunker. He. He shot him. He killed Charles. Caleb crumpled into sobs. And I momentarily wanted to hit him. For not stopping it. For not saving Charles. For telling me. Caleb took a deep breath and there was a soft knock at the door. Agent Stevens stood in the doorway and saw Caleb in a sobbing mess. He took me to the kitchen, sat me at the table, and looked me in the eye. Some people may not want you to know this, but maybe you've been through too much. But I know your story, and I think you can handle pretty much anything, Maggie. He slid an envelope across the table at me. Inside were photographs. I recognized the floor. It was my room. There were small, yellow tags with numbers on the fourth panel of wood past my bed. It was the compartment. The next photo showed a handgun inside the compartment. It also had yellow squares with numbers next to it. Maggie, I need you to brace yourself. That gun killed your brother. You slept next to it for 10 years. That can be a lot to hear. I lifted the picture and started to pick up the next when Caleb ran in. No, he said, and ripped the envelope and photos from my hand. She needs to know, Agent Stevens said as he stood up. No! Caleb screamed and went to grab Agent Stevens. I had never seen Caleb angry before. But in his anger, Caleb had dropped the photographs, and one had slid across the floor. It was my wallpaper. Small trees with tire swings in a repeated pattern. It was a square ripped away. Dark, rotting drywall house innards. Several yellow tags in an oval inside a dark rectangle. And inside... The dark rectangle was the corpse of my brother Charles. I don't remember screaming, but they tell me I did. Mama and I spent that night in the hospital, in a shared room, with Caleb sleeping in a chair between us. The night he murdered him, my father had sealed my brother's body in the wall in my room. One last and lasting grip on my life from beyond the grave... My father had tortured and terrified me one last time. He knew my beloved brother, the good and the pure, had been rotting away in my walls all those years. Any time I had gotten too smart with him, he would given me a knowing smirk after my beating. Only then, with that photograph in my hand, did I know what that smirk meant. We buried Charles, of course. I visited the grave this morning and left him some lilacs. Mama is very healthy, but sad. I hear her cry at night sometimes and I go in and lie with her like those nights at the shelter. I turn on the light in her room and I read where the wild things are to her until she falls asleep again. Most nights, I look across the street and see the light on in Caleb's room too.
3: I hope you enjoyed The Lilac Tower, as written by J.C. Selby and performed by Alicia Pavlis. Thank you for listening and for joining us tonight for this episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. As a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012 and consider signing up as a patron at our website chillingtalesfordarknights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams thanks for joining us you've been listening to chilling tales for dark nights a production of chilling entertainment and a proud member of the simply scary podcasts network Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions.
0: Or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us.
0: Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have.
1: It's a real accepting and loving community, especially with two young kids.
2: See what makes Minnesota the star of the North.